1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The first epistle of the Apostle Peter, remember, was written from perhaps Rome, almost certainly around 63 or 64 AD. And in this letter, Peter will encourage the reader to stand firm in the true grace of God. As a matter of fact, when you come all the way to the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, or excuse me, Peter writes, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And at the heart of the letter is the goal to provide hope and encouragement to all who are in pain and suffering, to everyone who finds themselves in a difficult circumstance, most particularly in the context in which this thing is being written, this letter is being written, it is the outpouring of persecution that's beginning to take place on the fledgling church. If you want to experience true security in suffering, Peter is going to bring to your attention that your security lies in your salvation. And so the letter will focus on our living hope in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And then the letter will switch gears and emphasize our strange life in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11. And then center on the fiery ordeal, as Peter describes it, that's going to take place in chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5, verse 13. When we gathered together the last week, we talked about our... Mutual or the source of our salvation in verses 1 and 2. And, and how we were chosen by God the Father in verses 1 and 2. How we're made holy or set apart from sin to God through the Holy Spirit in verse 2. And how we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in verse 2. And so the focus of Peter's letter is going to move from the source of salvation to the security of salvation, we might even use the expression, the guarantee of salvation. And the proof that Peter offers is nothing less than the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead in verse 3. And so the proof of our salvation is in the past. It's rooted and grounded in a historical event. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then the permanence is secure both in the present and in the future by the promise that the permanence is kept for us 
in heaven by God himself in verse 4. So the proof and the permanence is further reinforced by the power of God. God's power assures us that one day, one day, one day, we will safely arrive at our destination, which is heaven. And make no mistake about it. If you are born again, if you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and set apart from sin to God, heaven is your destination. And so it begins in verse 3, a proven salvation. Look what Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You may not understand exactly what Peter has done, but this is called a blessing or a doxology. In a, in a very real sense, this is a form of song. song. The word blessed in this particular instance, in this particular verse, is always used of God. It's never used to describe the blessings for a human or the blessings of creation. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's an exclamation of joy. It's a song in a very real sense. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. I want to draw particular attention to that expression, begotten again. People will sometimes say to me, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of them born again types. And I will typically ask, what, help me understand what you mean by that. Well, you know, the born-again types, you know, the kinds that are way, way to the political right, you know, the, the airheads and the, the, the fundamentals that you, the fundamentalists that you hear about on TV or, or on the radio. And I, what, I, what I will point out is that the popular media has made born-again a kind of a term of, ridicule or mockery or sarcasm. As a matter of fact, in my lifetime, the person who sort of popularized the expression born again was a former famous president, Jimmy Carter. As a matter of fact, he made national news by describing himself. He was a self-described born-again Christian. And the popular media and the popular culture latched on to that expression in order to vilify and sometimes deride Christians. But what I want to point out to you is that both Peter and John draw specific attention to that expression. And here, when Peter says, has begotten us again, it's the verb is just a singular word, anageneo. It only appears here. And then again in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so in the original language, the prefix Anna means again. And Janao means 
pertaining to birth or generation, if you will. And so it means beget again. The New American Standard reads this, has caused us to be born again. The Bible teaches that all Christians, all Christians who are truly Christians are born again. In John chapter 3, John uses the expression born from on high. And the term is a metaphor to describe the new life that we receive when we believe the Father's message that Jesus Christ died for our sin and we accept and we yield to the Holy Spirit's invitation. And the reality is you cannot, I repeat, you cannot be a Christian without a fresh beginning provided by God in Christ. And with the new birth comes a fresh outlook, a new perspective, a new set of priorities. And we embrace God-honoring values. In other words, it isn't just simply a change of mind about what you believe concerning the history of, of the Bible or the biography of Jesus. This isn't just getting a whole new set of information about Jesus. The reality is when you are born again, you experience something dramatic and something different. And so again, this has nothing to do with a prescribed political agenda. In 1 Peter chapter 1 or in John chapter 3, do you see religious right in the text? I don't, because that's not the point. In Christ, we embrace truth, and we embrace justice, and we embrace love. And so the new birth is a gift from God that's wrought by the Holy Spirit that marks a new life that the New Testament describes leaving darkness and embracing light. It means leaving death and embracing life. And the reality is when we cross into a new realm of existence, you cross into the kingdom of God and not everyone will understand what I am saying. But that's not to create arrogance or defensiveness in the heart of the Christian. We honor God. We honor Christ. We honor the Bible. You demonstrate love for God and love for each other. You embrace the truth and you embrace the plan of God and the message of God. Because guess what? The Spirit of God has become real in your heart and in your life. John Owen, who was a very famous English nonconformist, wrote, let them pretend what they please. The true reason why any despise the new birth is because they hate a new life. He says, he that cannot endure to live to God will as little endure to hear of being born of God. He lived in the 1600s during the time of the pilgrims. John Owen, when he wrote this, let them pretend what they please. The true reason why any despise the new birth is because they hate a new life. And the reality is you can't be a Christian without the new life. It isn't an opinion or an obligation that you embrace, but it is a new birth. 
that has its origin in the Father and then in the sacrifice of the Son that's brought about by the Holy Spirit. It was Billy Graham who said, the devil will do everything in his power to sow seeds of doubt in your mind as whether your conversion is a reality or not. He was right. When you leave darkness and you enter the light, when you embrace what the Bible has to say, as soon as you do that, the devil shows up and says, you're kidding me, right? You're one of those born-againers? Yeah. Well, it wasn't real. You know what happened? You were just swept up in the emotion of the circumstance. Or, you know, this is all well and good, but um, how do you know you're really saved? How do you know that when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, how can you be sure that all of your sin was forgiven for all time and that the reality is you're now connected to God in Christ and that heaven is your ultimate destination? Some people will say, well, I don't know exactly the exact moment when I became born again. That's okay. William Gurnall wrote, Satan will ask the Christian the time of his conversion. Art thou a Christian, will he say? And dost thou not know when thou commencest? Now content thyself with this, that thou seest the streams of grace. You may know the sun is up, though you did not observe when it rose. It, it was the old-fashioned way of saying, hey, look, you know the difference between daytime and nighttime, don't you? You're either in the light or you're in the dark. Has the sun come up in your life? Have you been born again? Do you know that your heart has fundamentally changed because you have embraced the living Lord Jesus Christ? And, and Peter writes, we are born again to a living hope. You know, this is such a strange expression. Remember what we learned the last time we were together, how Paul can be characterized as the apostle of faith and how John can be characterized as the apostle of love. But Peter, Peter can be characterized as the apostle of hope because he's always talking about hope. Now, again, if for whatever reason you don't get it, this Peter who wrote the, the little letter that's right in front of you, this is the same Peter who walked with Jesus. This is the same Peter. Peter, who was witness to the miracles of Jesus. This is the same Peter who denied Jesus. This is the same Peter who watched him get crucified. This is the same Peter who on Sunday morning ran with John the Apostle to the empty tomb and saw the cloth that was folded. This is the same Peter who saw the risen and resurrected Jesus. This is the same Peter who was at the seashore of Galilee when Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs and feed my sheep. This is the same Peter who knew what it was like to experience great failure and a great restoration. He says we're born again to a living hope. 
The Greek verb is zozon. It's the present active participle of a very familiar word, zoe. Remember in the original language, bios is, is a word for life. We get the word biology from it. Zoos is another word for life, zoology. We get that word from it. But when it's used here, zoos, it speaks of the kind of life that, that comes from God. And, and he's so fond of using that particular word, zoe and zao, in, in verse 23, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, in, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And so what is this great hope? What is this living hope? Do you know what? It's nothing less than the promise of eternal life in Christ. Why is it called living? Because it's not a dead hope. It's not a probable hope. It's not a foolish hope. It's not a naive hope. It's not a fantasy hope. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't positive self-taught. This is hope that is Real, and this is hope that is true. This is something that Peter wants to bring to your attention that it really, truly exists. And you might be thinking, well, if it's true and it's real, then it's only true and real in another world. It's real or true in another time or it's real and true in another existence. And Peter goes, no, it isn't, just a, it isn't just a hope for something that's future. But make no mistake about it. Hope always involves the future, doesn't it? <laughs> there was a guy named John Albert Bengel who said, Christ in the heart, heaven in the heart. The heart in heaven. He talked about the present reality of Jesus in your heart. And because Jesus is in your heart, then in direct proportion to Jesus being in your heart, heaven is in your heart. No wonder Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. The truth about eternal life is not that it begins the moment you die. It doesn't begin the moment your sorrow disappears. It doesn't begin the moment the pain fades into peace. See, you might be thinking, hope becomes real to me the moment that my problems are gone and my sorrows are gone and the thing that is hurting me disappears. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear eternal life exists now. It's the present possession of everyone who is born again and sealed by the Spirit. Eternal life exists in the Father and in the Son. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was, was defining eternal life in his own high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 3, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've said this over and over and over again that Jesus defines eternal life not so much in terms of simply living forever but of loving forever and being loved forever. So eternal life begins the moment 
He loves you in the moment you love him back. And it never stops. It never ceases. A living hope lives now. And the source of hope is God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And the inheritance of hope is found in verse 4. It's a permanent hope. That is, it's a permanent salvation. And then the assurance of hope is found in verse 5. It's a powerful salvation. Now remember, remember, because Peter is the apostle of hope, he reminds us that our hope as believers lie in what John Phillips calls a triumphant rapture to glory or an equally triumphant exit from the grave. I like that. In other words, Peter is going to point out that a triumphant rapture to glory, that means that our hope in part is the reality that some of us may not die physically, but that Jesus will show up. Well, what if you do die physically? Then make no mistake about it. You're going to come up out of the grave. You see, your hope is that Jesus is coming or your hope is that Jesus will call you from the grave. That's why hope always has the future in mind. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that there is hope and eternal life in Christ. Is there, and see, this should cause each and every one of us to ask yet another important question. Is there hope and eternal life anywhere else? With anyone else? What do you suppose the answer is? That's exactly the right answer. The exact right answer is, no, there is no other hope. There is no other place. Life apart from the Father and life apart from the Son and life apart from the Spirit is not real life. And so if you're wondering... Well, I want to have life apart from God, and I want to have life apart from Jesus. Good luck with that. Because it's not going to happen. You might have what seems like life, but it won't be real. And it certainly won't be permanent. The person must believe the Father's message and trust the Son if he or she wishes to have eternal life. Underscore it. Eternal life does not exist anywhere else other than in the person of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus. And so if your constant preoccupation is a religious one, because you thought that life was in Catholicism, or you thought that life was in Protestantism, or you thought that life was in Calvinism, or you thought that life was in Arminianism, if you thought that life was in some sort of psychological or philosophical construct, then you would be severely mistaken. Have you ever asked the most important question that anyone could ever ask? How does God give this life? How do I obtain this living hope? That's a great question. And Peter gives the answer. Peter gives the answer when he says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How do you get this living hope? His abundant mercy, Elias. Here, the word mercy means feelings of pity and feelings of compassion and feelings of affection and feelings of kindness. It carries with it the idea to take something or someone and bring it to yourself and tenderly care for it. If we are ever going to be accepted, if we're ever going to be given a living hope, here's Peter's point, God is going to have to do it. It's the Lord who's going to have to do it because human beings are thoroughly sinful. We can only have hope. There's only one hope, and that is that God will have mercy on us. One Bible writer said, mercy is pity shown to weak, guilty, undeserving people. Do you want to know how to get this? then somehow you're going to have to experience the mercy of God that is shown to the weak and the guilty and the undeserving. But if you say, I am strong and I am innocent and I deserve a right relationship with God. What do you think the chances of you of receiving God's mercy are? Zero is the right answer. We could turn this into a Jeopardy category. Alex, I'll take salvation for 200. (laughs) This is exactly right. If you doubt that you're a sinner, then I want you to just ask yourself this simple question. How have I been treating God lately? But in order to be honest with yourself, and in order to be honest with the question, how have I been treating God lately? You have to be honest. Do you ignore him? Do you neglect him? Do you fail him? Do you rebel against him? Have you rejected him? Have you cursed him? Have you disobeyed him? Have you sinned against him? Have you disbelieved him? Have you turned away from him? Have you allowed your pain and your sorrow and your circumstances to create a mechanism of self-pity that now you're drowning in a sea of your own pain and your own circumstances? circumstances because now all you have time for is yourself and your pain and your sorrow and your horrible circumstances. I ask you another question. Has God had mercy on you? What do you mean? Well, let me ask you it another way. Has God withheld his judgment from you? If you're hearing this message from anywhere other than hell, then the answer is God has withheld his judgment from you. If you happen to be in a place where you're hearing this message, whether it is driving down the street, whether you're lying in a hospital bed, no matter where you are, no matter where you're hearing this message, 
If you are hearing this message, remember what the Bible says, that God is abundant in mercy. And abundant means overflowing and endless and boundless. His mercy flows on and on. The mercy flows creating a living hope and the gift of eternal life in your heart and in your trial, in your sorrow, in your setback. Mercy is still at work. Even if you don't feel his mercy. Even if you aren't willing to embrace his mercy. His mercy is still at work. Because he's calling you and challenging you. And, 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 and communicating with you. I want you to think for just a moment that God will not allow Satan to cross the line that the father has drawn in the sand. Even like Job, where you may have experienced pain and you may have experienced heartache and you may have experienced setbacks, God still extends his mercy. In Romans 11.32, Paul writes, For God has committed them all, speaking of all of humanity, to disobedience. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I've been disobedient. Good, you're a good candidate for mercy. No, you don't understand. I've been really disobedient. There's abundant mercy. What do you mean if, what if I told you it's like pretty severe and pretty prolonged disobedience? Then God has a gusher of mercy for you, flowing out of the heart of the Father in the Son. Mercy available to forgive you, mercy available to restore you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you are saved. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, how rich is he? Where every grain of sand on the earth were pure and precious gold. And you could exchange it at your coin shop for the current value of $1,250 an ounce. And if mercy could be purchased... For a billion dollars. And all you had to do was just go dig some dirt and put it in a wheelbarrow and take it in. But guess what? You don't have to dig in the dirt. And God's mercy is available not because of what you have done, but because of his great love. And this living hope comes by the new birth. And there is, there is, there is no hope for eternal life. Unless the person is born again by the Holy Spirit. And a person who is born again is born again. Not in the way that you first came into life. When I was a kid growing up, when I first got saved, there was a song that we used to sing. 
You must be born again, not as you first came into life, but you must be born of spirit from a dark world into light, and you'll see the cross at Calvary where Jesus died for you, and you'll come to know his plan of life, of grace, and truth. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the living hope comes by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And how does the resurrection of Jesus give us hope of living forever? Look again what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? The resurrection of Jesus is proof positive that Jesus is who he says he is and that God can raise the dead and that God has unlimited power. And and because he can raise the dead and because he has unlimited power, he can raise you from the dead. Not only can he change your heart, but he can change your heart forever. And you know what else the resurrection of Jesus proves? That Jesus isn't a liar. You see, for the person who keeps saying, how can I know that the Bible is true? And how can I know that the promise is true? And how can I know that Jesus is true? Jesus rose from the dead. Does that sound like a liar to you? Does that sound like a person who makes an empty promise? The resurrection of Jesus proves that he's the son of God, the perfect and ideal man. And everything that he did was acceptable to the father. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection was perfect and ideal. So that when Jesus said in John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Either that is true or that is false. John Calvin wrote, quote, although we have complete salvation through his death because we are reconciled to God by it, it is by his resurrection, not his death, that we are said to be born to a living hope. Here's Paul's argument and Peter's argument. Paul's argument is when Jesus died, So did you. Both Paul and Peter's argument is when Jesus rose from the dead, so did you. This is why Paul could write with complete confidence, my life is hidden with Christ. And so it's not just a proven salvation, it's a permanent salvation. Look what it says in verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The salvation is permanent. This is our inheritance of hope. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You all know what the word inheritance means, right? Inheritance are those things which are given by virtue of the fact that something is passed down to someone else. We are given those things that belong to the Father through the Son. What does does this mean? 
We're given a new nature, a new state of being. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God, it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Later on, even in 1 Peter, Paul, excuse me, Peter will say that we become partakers of the divine nature. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, we're chosen, adopted, accepted. We're made blameless and harmless in Philippians chapter 2. We're given eternal life in John chapter 3 and in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you look in your Bible, in your concordance, look up the word given. G-I-V-E-N. And then take that word and then look at everything that God has given to the believer. We are given an, an enduring substance in Hebrews 10.34. We're given a glorious body in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are given glory and honor and peace. We are given the durable riches of righteousness and peace. We are given to be made priests and kings. We are given crowns of incorruption. We are given crowns of righteous. We are given a crown of life. We are given a crown of glory. Does that sound like someone who has been short-changed in the inheritance? I want you to think about all of those places in the Bible where it records what we are made. We are made exalted beings, Revelation 7, 9. We are made ruler over many things in Matthew 25, 23. We're given the kingdom of God in James chapter 2, verse 5. We're given a position of rule and authority over cities in Luke 19, 17. We're given thrones and privileges of reigning forever in Revelation 24. We're given the privilege of surrounding the throne of God in eternity future in Revelation 7, 9. We are made kings in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. No wonder Peter calls this an incorruptible inheritance. The word incorruptible, by the way, begs close attention. The Greek alpha privative A and the verb phthero, it means to destroy. The word means to destroy, and so when you put the negative in front of it, it means something that cannot be destroyed. It means something that cannot perish. Chuck Swindoll writes, our ultimate home is heaven and our place there is reserved under the constant omnipotent surveillance of an almighty God. Nothing can destroy it. Nothing can defile it. Nothing can diminish it. Nothing can displace it. I like that. Whatever it is and whatever it includes... Your inheritance can't be polluted. It can't be dirtied. It cannot be defiled. It cannot age. It cannot deteriorate. It cannot disappear. Matthew Henry points out that everything on the earth changes from the better to the worse. But not your inheritance. Your salvation. I want you to think this through. How can salvation go from eternal to temporal? It can't. The expression does not fade away. Amarantas. Again, the A. It means last forever and ever. It cannot cease to exist. The splendor and beauty cannot tarnish or fade. Nothing 
not our energy or body, which will wear away or waste away, but whatever it is that lasts forever, our inheritance is in heaven and it's reserved there for us. Actually, what Peter is saying, it's kept there by God for us. We're all going to die or we're going to be raptured. We pass on to our children the things that we've accumulated over a lifetime. You know, my father died last year. And my father was very old-fashioned. He didn't believe in banks. He believed in paying cash for everything. He believed in paying off his, his house as soon as possible. And so my father built his whole life and spent his whole life purchasing the home that his family grew up in and then he purchased rental properties and then he purchased more rental properties and he purchased more rental properties for the purpose of those properties generating revenue so that he would be taken care of his whole life and then a storm came it's called Hurricane Katrina and when the storm came my father put all of the guns and the jewelry and the gold watches and the gold coins and the silver coins in top of the attic and 14 feet of water came in and all of the rental property was destroyed and his home was destroyed and the guns, gold and silver dropped into the mud and when the flood receded, the people came from all over and they picked out the gold and they picked out the silver and they threw away the guns and everything that he worked for was gone. You see, if what you're working for can be taken away from you, if someone can break into it, if someone can steal it, if it can rust or decay, then that is not your inheritance. In an earthly will, you have to wait for the death of the testator and for all of the legal transactions and the tax obligations and the financial settlements to take place. And when the waiting period is over, the, the value of the inheritance is typically a lot less. Sometimes the distribution of the settlement among the family creates hard feelings, drama, jealousy, strife. But not the inheritance that you get in Jesus. From the moment of our salvation throughout our entire lives, we are guaranteed, listen carefully, our full inheritance. And even though you may have no idea what that means, everything that God has set aside in Christ will be waiting for you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul writes, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know how you can get rid of your eternal life? Get rid of Jesus. Who's going to storm heaven's gate? Who's going to drag him off of the, the throne that the Father has established for him? As a matter of fact, in the original language, this verse is like a song. Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the re resurrection. Peter writes, perish, afartos, spoil, amiantos, fade, amarantos. 
In the original language, it's lyrical. You can't go online. You can't book your reservation. Your reservation can't be changed or canceled. Your reservation is in heaven. And by the way, reserved is in the perfect tense, expressing a past activity with results that continue in the present. God has been keeping and still keeps the inheritance. Peter is saying your inheritance is prepared. It's reserved. It's certain. It's waiting. Why do you suppose this is so important? to the people who are, who are reading this letter. Because their earthly inheritance is gone. They've been uprooted from their homes and from their families and from their business and from their wealth. These are people who are struggling with the question, if God loves me so much, why would he take everything away from me that I value? What happens if I'm in a terrible trial? And what if the terrible trial is so terrible that the devil says, your reservations have been canceled. Have you ever booked a flight or a hotel online only to show up and they go, we don't have any record of your booking. You see, people can make a mistake here. What if all hell breaks loose here on the earth? Is your reservation still safe with God? Heaven, the place untouched by wickedness or evil corruption? Banks may be safe, but they can be robbed. Homes, can they be invaded? Can people come in and take stuff out of your home? No wonder Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now all of a sudden we understand Christ in the heart. Heaven in the heart. The heart in heaven. The application commentary has a note on this. It says, quote, if people have too much money, prices go up and dollars buy less. Then the Federal Reserve Board raises prime interest rates and people have less money and prices stabilize. So the theory goes. Fortunately, none of the laws of economics apply to salvation. Everyone can have it. Money can't buy it. This value never depreciates. The investment tops anything your retirement plan can offer. God makes all the payments, gives you daily interest, keeps a huge escrow account for you in heaven. That's why we must take the Bible as our only real prospectus. It reads, quote, Don't worry. Serve God heartily. The future looks really good with God in control. Do you suppose this financial tip might Interest your neighbor? <laughs> and it's a powerful salvation. Look at verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to draw your attention to that word kept. Frorero. From the noun froros. Guard. So protected or shielded. Who are kept. That means Guarded, shielded, 
By the way, this was a military term in the ancient world. It was a, a, a term that you would use to describe the inner protection of a garrison. It was the interior protection of the guardhouse inside the city walls. I saw an interesting special on the History Channel called Breaking Points. And it, it featured a special safe. And its claim was that it could withstand the best safe cracking techniques for up to 30 minutes in the hopes that, you know, if somebody tried to break into your home or break into the safe, that the police could hopefully respond within 30 minutes. And so they brought out their two best safe crackers with an acetylene torch and they fired that baby up and they chopped and hacked and, and sprayed and chopped and hacked and sprayed and chopped and hacked and sprayed. And 20 minutes later, the safe was open. And everybody goes, oh, what a big disappointment. But can you imagine that once they broke the safe open, inside the safe was another safe? That's the image. That's the picture. It's a safe within a safe. If you could imagine the possibility that heaven could be stormed, that somehow your inheritance could be at risk, there's still God guarding it, protecting it, shielding it from the despair, from the sorrow, from the pain from the failure. Paul will write to the Corinthians and he'll say, this outward body is perishing, but the inward person is being renewed day by day. Is it possible that someone can take your home? Yeah. Is it possible that someone could take all of the things that you own right now? Yes. But Peter reminds the reader that it is God who protects. It's God who keeps by both the power of God and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In effect, God is on double duty. The Lord God keeps our inheritance secure in heaven all the while he shields us on the earth. He draws a line. And Peter's powerful point is that suffering, no matter how painful, no matter how severe, no matter how disabling, no matter how inexplicable, no matter how chronic, can't make our salvation go away. We sing a song. Not angels, nor demons, no power in earth or heaven. We might say no disease, not even death itself, can steal God's ultimate protection from your life. Do you know why death can't steal it away? Because Jesus has overcome death. He's come back to life. You see, a true faith is a continuing faith. Peter's not promising an absence of trial. He's not even promising an absence of painful persecutions. He's not even promising the absence of a violent death. Because that's exactly what he is going to experience. You know, most Bible scholars believe that Peter and Paul probably died within a month of each other. Peter is, is promising that our souls can't be harmed if we've accepted Jesus Christ's gift of salvation. 
Because the goal of that protection is salvation. Ready to be revealed at the last time. The blessings are ready. Ready to be revealed. The last time, of course, is the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. And the last time is the judgment day of Christ. The last acts of history, according to Peter, have now begun. That's what he's saying. A.R. Cousins wrote an ancient hymn that was sung by Ira Sankey. The Sands of Time and Sacred Songs, it's listed in a book. You probably have heard it from a long time ago. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned. When throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. This is not your home. Or if it is, it's only temporary. Because one day, either voluntarily or involuntarily, you will leave everything. I know. My father left everything. Everything that was destroyed by a flood. He left everything that was worthless and useless that could be destroyed or taken. And what was valuable was either taken by the state or by the attorneys. But he left something way more important to me a lesson. And the lesson is, are you going to live your life accumulating things? Or are you going to live your life for Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that with mercy and with judgment, the web of time you wove, and I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with your love. That, Lord, it's your hand that is guided. It is your hand that is planned. When throned where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Lord, it was always your plan. That we would come to the realization is that Jesus is all we need. When Jesus is all we have. And so again, Lord, we pray that as we unfold this tiny letter, as we begin to understand both sorrow and salvation, that we would begin to see that salvation isn't just a theological uh, topic that we debate, but rather it becomes the basis in which we find confidence on how we are going to live our lives every day either trusting you or not trusting you, embracing you or not embracing you, walking with you or not walking with you. And Lord, for the person who's heard the message of salvation over and over and over again, who's refused, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their heart, 
Lord, I pray that once again you would issue the invitation. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that your mercy is available to the person who is guilty. For the person who is undeserving. For the person who has treated you rottenly, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.